Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right, Romans chapter 8 is where we are this morning. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) praise God. (laughs) We have been working through Romans for the past year, and we have been plotting through Romans chapter 7, and praise God, we find ourselves in Romans chapter 8, so I'd love for you to open your own copy of God's Word and and follow along as I read the opening four verses in just a moment, and then pray, and then we're going to work back through this text. Thank you, Springer, for praying for my trip to India. I will be here next Sunday, but after the service, um, I'll be driving to Atlanta. I'm catching a red-eye flight out of Atlanta and flying to Mumbai, and then I'm taking a domestic Indian flight from Mumbai to Belgium, and, and so you, you can pray for me. The name of the Indian airline that I'm flying on is called Spice Jet. <laughs> so, so prayers, prayers appreciated, and um, we'll see how all that goes. Let me read Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, uh, and, and pray. Friends, these are some of the sweetest words in all of the Bible. For centuries, Christians have thought that Romans chapter 8 is one of the greatest chapters in all of the Bible. It's, it's one of the pe- mountain peaks of Scripture, and we, uh, we have the great privilege to, to camp out on this mountain for the coming weeks. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let's pray. Oh Lord, um, this is a magnificent portion of your word. All of your scripture is profitable for us and good for our souls. But there are portions of your word that seem to speak so clearly and decisively about the gospel and the Christian life that it, it just grabs our attention in a powerful way, and, and certainly Romans 8 is that. Lord, we come needy to this hour, to this time. We need your help. What, what we know not, teach us. What we truly need and have not, give us. And what we are not yet, but need to be, make us, I pray, by your word and by the Holy Spirit that is in your people and in this room now doing your will and your work. And we pray it all for the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Picture a man who has been in a dark, damp dungeon where there is no light for a long time. And then picture the, the, the door to that dungeon being swung open and it opening up to this beautiful noonday sunshine. That's what coming out of Romans 7 and the descriptive picture of the battle with sin that I believe is descriptive of the Christian experience to varying degrees is like. It's like we've been in this dark place, even though all of Scripture is good, obviously, but the struggle that Romans 7 depicts is, is a difficult and, and dark place. And then we get to Romans chapter 8, and it's as if the, the prison cell has been swung open and light shines in. And if you haven't seen daytime for a while, it's a natural reaction. You, you almost, the sun is so bright, you almost have to cover your eyes because it's so brilliant. And, and in a way, when we go from Romans chapter 7 into Romans chapter 8 verse 1, it's like it's so bright we have to blink a moment before our eyes adjust. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those words are so bright that it takes a while for our eyes, spiritually speaking, to adjust to them. All right, here's my plan. I want to work through this text. I have four truths that I think are particularly applicable to us. Now, this chapter is a bottomless well of truth. We could spend more than just several Sundays thinking about just these first four verses. But we don't have time for that. I think I'd wear you out if I did that. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 366 sermons on Romans, and he preached, like I think, over 30 in Romans chapter 8. I'm just going to mention a few of these truths that I see prominently. And, and over and over again, when I listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones preach, he was this Welsh preacher back in London in the mid-1900s. He has this app. He doesn't. He's actually dead now. But the people that love his ministry, like Martin Lloyd-Jones made this app. There, there's this app where you can listen to virtually all of his sermons. And oftentimes in his preaching, he will say things like, whoa, that's really good. I'll just leave you that for, that for you to work it out on your own. And so there's much of what we're going to dig into Romans chapter 8. We just won't be able to get into it, and I'll just leave us for, to work that out on our own. But let's look at four truths that I think are particularly applicable to us as we read these first four verses. The first is this. No condemnation means that the wrath of God has been removed. No condemnation. Those words there, the sweetest words in in Romans, no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus means that the wrath of God has been removed. Look again at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that word therefore is a kind of connecting phrase. He's saying that as a result of everything that I've talked about prior to, a consequence of that is that there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Now, let's stare at that verse. I, I realize how bright it is, but let's, let's let our eyes adjust to the truth of that verse. That means that humanity is in, by its nature, a state of condemnation. So something has changed. And I think that's the major message of Romans up to this point. Romans is a radically God-centered book. It's, it's, it's not a book that just gives you tips on how to live. In fact, that's not how the Bible is written, if you've been kind of conditioned that way. The, the Bible is about God and what he has done 
to glorify himself through his son who has rescued a people for himself to be a display of his glory to cosmic powers and the whole universe. And Romans in particular is a book that is about, in fact, it's a book that justifies God for saving anybody. It starts off with this this first few chapters talking about how all of humanity, whether they are Gentiles uh, that did not have God's law or whether they were Jews, God's people in the Old Testament that did have a specific revelation of God's law, that all people have rejected God, whether that law was written on tablets of stone or whether it was a, a law of conscience that's been written on all human hearts, every Gentile, we've all rejected God, and that brings the right and just wrath of God. And the history of the Old Testament is, is that nobody can do anything to bring themselves back into a place where God is no longer wrathful against their rebellion. That's the history of humanity. And so really the problem of the Bible, the riddle of the Bible, is how can a holy God actually save anybody because human empirical evidence has shown us that nobody deserves to be saved. So how can God be holy, stay holy, not fudge on his grading curve, maintain his standard, and yet save anybody. That's the dilemma. In fact, we see that as a kind of dilemma offered to us, a kind of riddle in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 34, uh, I've been reading through Exodus in my Bible reading plan. By the way, we're going to start a midweek fellowship here in a few weeks, and we're going to go through in kind of large chunks in about seven or eight weeks Exodus, so look forward to that. But listen to what God says to Moses after Israel has, has rejected God and is rebelling against God. God saved them from Egypt, and they're wandering through the desert and constructing idols for themselves and disobeying God despite his clear deliverance of them. Listen to what God says to Moses in Exodus 34, starting in verse 6. Just a couple of verses. The Lord passed before him, meaning Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Listen to verse 7, the first part of it. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Do you see the... The apparent contradiction there, God is a God who forgives iniquity, but yet he will by no means clear the guilty. And when we read the rest of the Old Testament, and we even look at our own lives, we realize that all of humanity falls into the camp of the guilty. So if God is not going to forgive the guilty, but he's actually going to clear the guilty, How do those two seemingly incompatible truths meet? And that's the good news of the gospel, is that Jesus becomes a man, lives a life that no human has ever lived, obeys God perfectly where every other person has disobeyed God, lays down his life on the cross as a sacrifice to absorb the wrath of God, to satisfy the wrath of God, so that the wrath of God has been removed for those who trust in Jesus. Now, if you are around Crosspoint, you know that, in fact, I hope you know that you hear that in some way every Sunday. Do you, do you, do you guys know that? Is that new to you? Oh, please, let that not be new to you if you're, if you're at Crosspoint for a while. 
But here's the thing about the Bible. The Bible never gets over that point. <laughs> the Bible, it's like that's the center of all truth, and it is. And the Bible just keeps applying that to everything. And what Paul is saying here is that humanity in its rebellion was under God's right and just wrath. And Jesus has come and absorbed the wrath of God and removed it for the people of God. Th think about that, that picture. How has that wrath been removed or satisfied? Through Jesus. In fact, that's what verse 3 is about. Look at verse 3 of Romans 8, verse 3 that we just read. It answers how verse 1 is even possible. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Nobody in the Old Testament could fulfill the law. Nobody now living can obey God perfectly. And because God is holy, and because he can't besmirch or soil his holiness by letting anything unholy into his presence, there's a dilemma. And his law calls for judgment. His law calls for obedience, which we cannot perform perfectly. And so he sins. Look at the second half of verse 3. He sends his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now that phrase, likeness of sinful flesh, is really, really important. It doesn't mean that Jesus was in any way sinful. Of course, he isn't. In fact, we read in many other parts of the Bible, like Hebrews chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 4, how Jesus had to be made like us in every way except he was without sin. But the point is, is that Jesus becomes like us. He, he is acquainted with our sorrows. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus as a man is not a detached, remote version of man, like a superman who's not acquainted with our weaknesses. You have Jesus, who is eternally the Son of God, who becomes fully man. So he's 100% God and 100% man. How we piece those things together is a mystery that we can never fully understand this side of eternity. I'm not sure that we will ever understand it, even in glory. But the point is, is that Jesus becomes like us and lays down his human flesh as a sacrifice. So it's, it's, it's an eye for an eye. It's, it's flesh for flesh, which is what the law called for. And Jesus, because he's not just a good man, but a perfect and holy, and eternally holy man, has enough holiness to satisfy all the wrath of God. So the wrath of God, the condemnation that is rightly against all people, is extinguished. Now, that's exactly what Paul has said in Romans chapter 3. So let's, let's just back up. you got your Bibles open to Romans 8. Hopefully, just go a couple chapters to Romans chapter 3. Let's connect it all together. This is one long letter. So look at, this is exactly what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. So if Romans chapter 8 is the greatest chapter in the Bible, Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 26 may just be the greatest paragraph in the Bible. And there are some people in this congregation who like to hassle me because they believe that all of God's word is equally inspired. And every time I say that, they give me a little friction. But that's okay. I have the microphone right now, and they don't. 
chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God, in other words, how will somebody become righteous before God? It's not a righteousness of God's intrinsic nature, although clearly he's righteous, but it's a righteousness that God gives. So remember, that was Luther's great discovery in Romans chapter 1. This righteousness of God, this phrase in Romans, is speaking about the righteousness that God gives to guilty sinners so that they can be in his presence. That's the dilemma. How will a holy God save anybody? Because we all can't stand before God and say, I'm worthy to be in your presence. So then, how will it happen? Well, the righteousness of God that he gives through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, listen to verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now you should know that word propitiation if you've been around here for a while. If you're not, let me explain it to you now. It's a word that we have kind of lost in modern English and that is to our deficiency. This word propitiation means that it, it, Jesus is a wrath absorbing sacrifice, that God is holy and just and wrathful against sin, and Jesus comes and substitutes himself. He puts himself in the place of his people, and he bears the wrath of God, and to propitiate means to satisfy it, to extinguish it, to remove it, and not just remove it, but turn it into favor and grace. So he doesn't just take away our sin, he actually gives us his righteousness. And that's what propitiation means. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. In other words, all of that stuff that he put up with in the Old Testament wasn't God smudging the curve. It was him waiting in patience until Jesus would come and finally solve the problem which the law could never do. Verse 26, this was to show his righteousness at the present time. And here's the answer to the riddle of Exodus 34. Remember? How can God forgive the guilty but by, no but by no means clear the guilty? How's he gonna do that? Well, the answer is he does it in Jesus. So he pours out his wrath on Jesus. God's wrath has been poured out, but not on his people, on Jesus. And so God's justice is satisfied, and yet he's also the justifier. Look at verse 26, let me just read it. So that he might be just, in other words, he maintains his holiness, and the justifier, he's also gracious to the one who has faith in Jesus. And oh, by the way, the way a person gets faith in Jesus is not that they bring it to the table, but God actually gives a person what he requires of them when he saves them. And so even the faith that a person exercises in Jesus is a consequence of God's prior action in their life to save them and give them the very thing that then they need to exercise in him. Do you see that? And so, as a consequence of all this, Paul says, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Think of how stunning that is. I gotta put my glasses down, I'm gonna break them. I stepped on them and I'm gonna crush them in my hand like a little egg. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta hold it like a bird, you know? 
tight enough so it doesn't fly away, but not so hard that you crush it. <laughs> what does this mean? What does this mean? We have to adjust our eyes to the brightness of this text. It's so glorious. This means that if you are in Christ, there is nothing past, present, or future that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. In fact, that's how this chapter ends. I mean, we can't even get through the first four verses without getting to the end of it because it's all woven together. This means that the future has invaded the present. This means that even though we are still sinning, and isn't that the witness of Romans chapter seven? Even though we still struggle with sin after salvation, that's sanctification, God has made a declaration that is not just true in this moment, but it is true for all time. You, therefore, if you're in Christ, no longer suffer the wrath of God because Jesus has extinguished it. He's taken it away. This means that if Christians suffer under an undue sort of self-absorbed woes me attitude, they are not fully applying the gospel to their own hearts. And, and doesn't this plague all of us at certain times, right? Now, there's a difference between conviction, which is the Holy Spirit chasing in us for our remaining sin, and condemnation. The conviction's good for our soul. It's what, it's what God uses to prod us to become more like Jesus. That's the Christian life. But conviction here has been removed. And, and we are now free to which we'll get into in the coming weeks, enjoy the adopting grace of God. And let me just, before we move on here, just note, let me just note this. Note that, and this is going to become a pretty important theme through Romans chapter 8, especially when we get to verse 28, 29 and following, and then especially in Romans chapter 9. He says it's for those, for those. There's a specific, we might even call it a particular group of people here that's in view, and it's the it's believers for those. So, so a natural deduction from that is that if there's no condemnation on those who are in Christ Jesus, that means that there still is condemnation for those who are not. Now, many of you, maybe, maybe you just came to church today by an invitation of a friend, and maybe, maybe one of the reasons you haven't been in church up to this point is because... Um, because the preacher preached kind of a hellfire and brimstone legalism where all he talked about was hell and condemnation and that kind of wore you out. And I, I understand that. But I, I would not be faithful or loving to you if I didn't point out to you that the Bible is very clear here. There's not like wicked people who deserve judgment and then Christians who the Bible applies to and then there's just kind of this middle group of people who are basically good, and they're just sort of neutral human beings who just kind of, you know, if they, if they do good, everything's going to kind of work out. That, that's not what the Bible says here. It really boils all of humanity down into just two groups, those who, who are those who are in Christ Jesus and those who are not. And those who are in Christ Jesus, the wrath of God has been removed, and those who are not in Christ Jesus, the wrath of God is, is still on them. In fact, that's what the... 
the disciple John says in John 3.36, he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So I, I wouldn't be loved. I mean, come on, the goal of our gathering here is not to make you feel good and to pep you up so that hopefully you will come back and make us feel good about ourselves because we're a growing church. No, no, that's wickedness if that's our motivation. If, if I knew that a tsunami was going to hit this building tomorrow and I didn't tell you, but I just told you that puppies are cute and flowers are pretty so that we could go on our way, I would be a wicked pastor. And if you're not, like if you're not believing in Christ, there's lots of time. We'll sit down, we'll, 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 we'll be patient and long-suffering, and we'll answer all questions you have. But I just, I just need to tell you that the text is clear here that, that if, if you're not in Christ, like what will be your plea on that day? You will stand before a creator, God, who's made you. And I'm just begging you, I'm begging you to consider that the Bible that maybe you have respected but not fully embraced is far more clear about what it means to be right with your creator, God. And, and take heed of that, I, I pray. And, and right now I pray that the Holy Spirit just would go beyond my feeble words and work something in you that only he can do. Point two, salvation comes through and only through union with Christ. Now, this may not seem like a fastball or a zinger, but th this, is, this is what, I, I just think this is one of the most under-preached, under-appreciated truths in all of the New Testament. So let me, let me read verse two again. It says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, what's Paul saying there? I don't think he's introducing a new law, because remember, Romans chapter 7 was all about the law, the Old Testament law that sin hijacked and used to condemn us, but even though sin and evil thought that it was triumphing, really that was all part of God's redemptive plan, the law was never intended to save. In fact, that's what verse three says. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. It's not like that surprised God. It's not like God came up with the law and it failed and he said, oh no, I've got to come up with plan B. Let's send Jesus to save people. No, Jesus, according to the Bible in many places, is called the lamb slain before the foundations of the earth. So God... <laughs> Now, this gets into deep waters here. God had a plan for the redemption of his people before he even created a world that fell. So God's not reacting to the inability of the law. The law is part of his redemptive plan. And in verse 2, Paul says, the law of the spirit of life. I think, I think that is a, a Pauline, a Paul way of just talking about the gospel, the law of the spirit of life, that God comes and he makes a dead heart alive. So we see the Trinity in this verse. We see God the Father who has planned salvation in eternity past. We see God the Son who has accomplished salvation in a moment of time in the cross and the resurrection. And we see God the Spirit who applies the, the spirit of life, God the Holy Spirit comes into a dead heart and I pray he's doing it right now and he's making somebody alive. He performs 
spiritual heart surgery, a heart transplant. He takes out a heart of stone and he gives a person a heart of flesh and makes them alive. And when he gives that heart transplant, one of the things that's part of that new heart is faith, whereby that person can now believe in Jesus. I think that's just... And a shorthand what Paul is saying here. The spirit of life has set you free. In other words, dead Lazarus, you were dead. Jesus came upon you. He said, get up. The Holy Spirit took out your heart of stone, gave you a heart of flesh, and made you believe. Now, we, we experience it differently, don't we? We think that we make decisions along the way, and we, we think that we're trying hard and all this kind of stuff. But behind all of our seeking of God is a Holy Spirit that's going before us, drawing us to him, and at his appointed time, he says, get up, sleeper, arise, O sleeper. The light has shined on you. That's, that's salvation. That's verse two, I think. But look what he says he says, the law of the spirit of life has set you free, how? In Christ Jesus. And it's this doctrine of the union of the believer with Christ. So salvation, here's what I, I want us to see. Salvation is not a distant transaction where God is kind of transcendent above us. He looks out and just kind of shoots a laser down at somebody and, and saves them. No, he, he comes into them. He, he makes them alive. And then he takes up residence in them. And, and he is in them and they are in him. And now believers are united, spiritually speaking, with Christ. In fact, that's what, let's go back to Romans chapter 6. Look at Romans 6. That's what Romans 6 verses 1 through 5 is all about. What then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Okay, listen to verse 3 through 5. It's so important. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him. There's this union going on. We're with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. And look at Paul's concluding reasoning in verse five. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so what now, I know this, we don't talk this way, so we got to do some work to kind of make ourselves understand it. But what, what Paul is saying is that salvation happens because God has grafted, he's woven us, he's put us into Christ, he's, he's made us part of his body. And now everything, this is so good, everything that Jesus has accomplished is ours because we're part of his body. Do you see that? So the death that Jesus has died on the cross is ours. We died to sin because we were in Christ. And the resurrection, the victory, is ours because we're in Jesus. Do you see that? Now, I don't, I don't, have, I don't have any way to explain that, really. The, the, the closest picture that we have on this earth is marriage. That's why marriage is so important. It's not just about two people falling in love and, oh, you're so cute and you, oh. If marriage is about, it's, a, it's an earthly, temporary picture of the gospel. Amen. 
Ephesians 5 says this. And I am solidly off track right now, but I think that the Lord is ordaining this. <laughs> Ephesians Paul says, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And then he says at the end of Ephesians 5, read this later this afternoon, that he says that the mystery of a man uniting with his wife is a mystery and it refers to Christ in the church. So, so marriage as a man and a wife are joined together, that is to be an earthly picture of how the heavenly groom, Jesus, unites himself to his earthly bride, the church. And they, you know the, the, the preacher at the wedding, it says the two shall become one? That, that's what's going on in marriage. It's a shadow of the gospel. The two shall become one. Jesus becomes one with us. That's how we are saved. So we are saved not through our distant agreement with what God proposes to us, but because he gives us a new heart, he unites us together, and now the death that Jesus died, we died, and the victory of the resurrection that Jesus has accomplished is ours. <laughs> no, that's better than that. John Murray says this. He was a theologian in the mid-1900s. Let me just, not on the screen. He says, union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. It is not simply a phase of the application of redemption. It underlies every aspect of our redemption. Somebody named John Calvin, I think I've heard of him before, says this, union with Christ has the highest degree of importance. So if you're a, think about this, picture this. If you're a Christian, by God's sovereign grace, you're saved because God has grafted you into Christ. And if Christ has grafted himself to you, you are his. You're his spouse, spiritually speaking. That's what the church is called, the bride of Christ. And listen to this. This is good news, believers. Jesus will never leave his wife. So how, how does, just some application before we move on. How, how should this impact how we see ourselves and one another? <laughs> We're part of Jesus' bride. I mean, we all know what it is to be disappointed in a real, even the best of human marriages, um, even the best of human relationships is, is filled with disappointment and unmet expectations, right? Don't say amen too loudly. <laughs> but Jesus, if you're a Christian, that means Jesus has wed himself to you. He will never disappoint you. It doesn't mean that these remaining 40 or 50 years of your life will be will be all what you in your earthly limited perspective want them to be, but it means that, as we'll get to in Romans 8, he works all things together for the good of his bride. 
that's what he does in everything. We, there will come a day when we will not see dimly through a mirror, as 1 Corinthians 13 says, but we will see him face to face, and we will see how everything that he has done for his bride was for her ultimate good and his glory. Do you see how loved you are? Come on, all of us on this earth, by our, our human relationships, are never loved like we want to be loved and we don't love like we should, but that is not the case with Jesus. You are, friend, you are, if you are in Christ, you are so more loved than you can ever imagine. Oh, God, make me believe that more. Help me. I don't, I don't believe that enough. Another application is if this is the case for how Jesus loves me, it's the case for how he loves you. And we're now part of the same bride. Do you see that? So if we are united with Christ, then that means we're united with each other. Shouldn't, shouldn't this have profound impacts on the way we speak to each other and the patience that we, come on, I don't want to be, I don't want to be angry with Jesus' bride. Who am I to be mad at the bride of Christ? That doesn't mean that she doesn't need to be critiqued and helped. That's ministry. That's life together. But man, we do it with love and reverence and respect. People of different cultures, people of different traditions, people of different preferences, man. That, that, that should just inform the way we love each other. We should, we should handle each other with a kind of reverence because, because we are speaking to somebody else who is part of the bride of Jesus. We do weddings here every now and again. In fact, that's, if you remember, we used to have these, th this was just one aisle, and we didn't have an aisle together, and, and the first wedding we said, oh no, we need to have an aisle that the bride can walk down. And so we, we split that, and we have an aisle now. We've done a bunch of weddings here. And can you, can you imagine the bride walking down in a wedding at Cross Point, the preacher standing here, the groom's right there, sanctuary full of people, can you imagine one guy in the back as the bride is walking down the aisle saying, she don't look that good. I don't like that dress. Can't believe she chose this music. Those flowers, droopy. On some level, all of that might be true. But if you said that, the groom and his groomsmen and his brothers and uncles and cousins would come up out of their chair and would do like <laughs> WWF on your face. <laughs> Rightly so, because you're talking about the bride and you speak about her reverently. And that, that's, well, come on, man. Is there somebody in this room right now who's who you're just sideways with, that's the bride of Christ, man. Don't, don't, don't let the sun go down on this day without just, just beginning a conversation and aiming for restoration. These are holy things. I'm going too long. Number three. Salvation is something that happens to us. It's not something we achieve. Look at verse three again. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. Look at verse two again. It says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free 
the, the noun doing the, the acting on the verb there is the triune God. Verse 3, God has done it. Salvation happens to us. It's not something that we activate and achieve. It's not something we work with God on to bring about. Jesus' death and resurrection, listen to me, and this is going to become really important in the second half of Romans 8 and really in Romans 9. Jesus' death does not make salvation a mere possibility. It's something that he actually accomplishes. So, so think of it this way. Salvation is, in the theological term, is, it's monergistic, mono, meaning one-handed. Jesus, God does it. He does it. He doesn't offer us a lifeline if we will take it. He saves us. God does it. And understanding this, well, why is this important? You may say, Brad, this is a kind of technical point of doctrine. Why get into this? Why is this important? Because if we understand this rightly, we orient ourselves to be in a better position to worship God more fervently because he deserves all the glory for our salvation. And if we see that we didn't arrive at this point even though it might feel like that, but behind it was a sovereign, predestining, gracious, electing hand of God that has done what we could never do on our own, that has brought us to this place. It will produce in us a kind of humility where we look up and we see, were it not for God, I would not be here. And friends, that, that is a humility that every Christian and especially the American church needs. And also, secondarily, before we, we, we land this plane, it, it, I, I, think, I think it actually gives us great hope. Now we look across the world, and we see people that are a million miles away from God, that seem to be completely running in the opposite direction, and now we realize, actually, there's hope. God's arm is not short. His ear is not dull. He saves to the uttermost, Hebrews 7.25. That means he can reach down into the darkest, most rebellious heart, and he can save it. And that's what God does, because he delights in bringing glory to his name by saving people who do not deserve it. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 25 to the end. He says, not many of you brothers were of noble birth. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. But... God in his grace reached down and snatched you out of condemnation for his glory, not because you had a good arm or a good 40 time, but because of his grace. Oh, man. Can't wait to buckle up, all right? Just buckle up, because if you don't like that truth, there's a lot of it in Romans 8 and 9. And, and, and it's good for your soul. It's good for your soul. It really is. And I, I, I'm praying like in these weeks to come just for pastoral sensitivity and like God help us understand the, help us understand the God-centeredness of salvation so as to bring about a humility in us and let that produce in us a biblical posture of confidence in a God who, who saves for his glory alone. I, 
Yeah, more, more on that in the weeks to come. Verse 4. All of this happens in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according to the, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And here's the final point, and very quickly. The purpose of salvation is God-glorifying obedience, which is walking according to the Spirit. So we cannot say that condemnation has been removed. We cannot say that we're united with Christ. We cannot say that salvation has happened to us if we just go on living however we want. Because verse 4 nullifies that as a possibility. It says all of this, and we won't spend much time on that this morning because I think that's a large part of what verses 5 through 17 is about, and we'll get into that. All of this has a divine purpose of bringing about a people who walk in the Spirit. And now all of the Old Testament law, all of its requirements, think, think about just what verse 4 is saying. This is stunning. Jesus' obedience is fulfilled in us. There's more union with Christ. You see, there's more union with Christ. It's everywhere, man. You, you see this doctrine, and it starts jumping off the page everywhere. That means that not only is Jesus' wrath-absorbing death on the cross ours, but now his obedience, what he did to fulfill the Old Testament law, the obedience that he credited, now it, it, it's fulfilled in us. And now we have the Spirit of God and the righteousness of God, which doesn't, now it would be completely incongruous. It would make no sense at all if Jesus did all of that, took away our sin, gave us his righteousness so that we could keep on living how we lived. Do you see that's just an impossibility according to verse 4. But he did all this. He gave us his righteousness. He makes us obedient. He gives us the ability. Do not hear me say that this means that Christians are perfect. Did you hear anything out of Romans 7? But it means that God has so equipped his bride with his spirit that he guarantees that her messed up hairdo, her raggedy dress over the course of time will be renewed so that on that wedding day, homegirl is going to pop. That's all I'm saying. She's going she's gonna to look good. And, that, and that's the story of every believer in Jesus. Now, it doesn't, doesn't, shouldn't, what should that do? It should, man, it should make us, it should make us, and all of this, man, all of this, we, how do we do this? Come on, there's a thousand applications. I don't have time. It, it, we, we, this, we do this together, right? Nobody, this is not an individual task. We do this together, man. We, <clears throat> We need each other. We need to be gracious with each other. We need to love each other. We need to know each other. We need to bear with one another. All of this. But God, and this is what Romans 8 is about. It's about assurance. God will bring his bride safely home. Oh. Let's pray.
But Lord, I think I can speak on behalf of my brothers and sisters here in this room that I, I believe all of this to be true, but I, I do not always act in accordance with it. I, I believe, but help my unbelief. I, 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 I suffer from the dreaded disease of gospel amnesia, and I need the smelling salts of Romans 8 underneath my nostrils daily. I need these truths to make it through the night. God, by your kindness, would over these coming weeks, as we camp out on this mountain peak of your word, may, may, the, may the air be fresher, and may the view be clearer, and may, may, may when we inevitably come down off the mountain, because that's part of life, may you etch in our mind's eye and tattoo on our hearts a picture of the assuring, adopting, sovereign grace of God where there is no condemnation and there is no separation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, Lord, emblazon that in our spiritual eyes as we camp on this mountain in these coming weeks. And for my friends here that don't know Jesus, maybe walked into this room not knowing you, Lord, Lord, I just I pray that you would give them eyes to see. I know they may have many unanswered questions, and so do I. But let them see, like Zacchaeus, as Robert read this morning, let them see Jesus. And may Jesus call them to himself and be united to them by faith. I pray that you do this all, Lord, for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.